time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. So Gary, we're so glad you could join us again. We just thought we'd you know, we, we, the last uh, podcast we did with you didn't record super well. We thought we'd just kind of do some of it again. And uh, we thought there's probably not much better to be focused on than being a better human being right now. And we thought we'd just have you back to the, the podcast or the first video cast for us ever, actually. All right. Okay. Oh, are we going to get, we're going to broadcast this as video too? We are. Time moves forward. <laughs> So for the audience, Neil, we should highlight Gary's story. You know, I think um, we'll have links to it. Um, I like the Counterpunch article, but, you know, our guest, Gary Tyler, um, served 41 years. Yes. After a wrongful conviction in 1975, notwithstanding that he was innocent, notwithstanding that the Fifth Circuit Court deemed his trial fundamentally unfair. And that three times the pardon board recommended he be pardoned. Now, anyway, all that aside, I think all of us with um, any interest in human affairs and affairs of the human heart can know that uh, this is a great person to talk to while we're all on lockdown. <laughs> Someone who's had, um, and I don't mean to diminish your experience, Gary, but I think we all feel a little bit of it, right? Um, yes. So, so much. And I think it'd be great to, you know, just to hear from you even on how you managed all those years. Wait, Chris, uh, let me add one thing in that's so remarkable yeah. about Gary's story that literally had me in tears. He mm -hmm. didn't hold anything against anybody. He wasn't mad at the judge. He wasn't mad at the jury. He wasn't mad at, you know, the police officers or... Well, at first, I think Gary was. <laughs> I think he uh, we all involved, right, Gary? Right, you know, it's all in the, all in the making. That's all. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. when you when you go through your experiences, you re you realize that what it is that you're trying to do. Are you trying to survive this? Or are you trying to let it get the best of you? Mm -hmm. You know, and being bitter and and allowing this to get to you is like poison. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, you you have a choice. Mm -hmm. You have a choice whether you want to take and uh, survive or whether you just want to take, you know, let this whole thing consume you. And mm -hmm. I refuse to let it consume it because I realized that life is life no matter where you're at. It's always best to try to take advantage of it. And that's what I, that's what I learned to do. I wanted to live. In order to live, I couldn't too much focus on the past because it was gonna, it just gonna consume me to the point where I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't do the things normally like I wanted to do. So mm -hmm. I had to, you know, refocus. Mm -hmm. And one thing was that start the forgiving, forgive those who have done me wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah. Gary, can we back up just a little bit? And do you mind sharing at least the first few minutes of, of the intro of you know you were wrongly convicted at fifteen or sixteen and. Um, and well, kind of take us through all of that? Well, October 7, 1974, there was a, a racial incident that happened at a high school out in St. Charles Parish, Destrahan. And, uh, and I was wrongly accused of uh, 
shooting a gun off a school bus, mm. a school bus that was being uh, evacuated after uh, after black students was attacked by white mobs. Mm -hmm. So your your bus was surrounded and being attacked. So you were all victims on that bus, huh? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and Gary, know, how did it? How did it wind up that you were charged, uh, do you think, with uh, the killing of Timothy Weber, the 13-year-old boy who uh, was well, shot in the head? All right. Surrounded well, him. initially, I was arrested for disturbing the peace and interfering in an officer's uh, duty. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I protested against the way the officers were treating the black youth. Mm -hmm. And um, and also at the time that there was... Uh, that they was arresting a cousin of mine because the officer saw that he had a 22 bullet with a chain around his neck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess that's seeing the call, you know, cast suspicion on him. Mm -hmm. So the officer arrested him and I, and when I realized what was happening, I protested. So I guess in, in short then, they pin this murder of the 13 year old boy on you, Timothy Weber. Right. Yes. Later for being, for being outspoken. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, trying to request that day, treatment. Yeah. Right. You know, by by the mere fact that me being on a bus and by them investigating, they assumed that I probably along with many other youths knew what was going on on the bus. Mm -hmm. And I guess my answer in particular, they didn't they didn't like my response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because one of the things that I told them that how could you make me know something I haven't seen? Mm -hmm. If I don't know anything, I don't know it. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, they didn't, you know, like I say, they didn't like my response. I guess they didn't like my attitude either because I was a juvenile and I didn't show any fear at the time. Mm -hmm. That's the way he probably looked at it. So I felt that they must have felt that, hey, he had a place and he, and he failed to realize it. So, that, mm -hmm. so they had to put me in my place. And one thing they started by smacking me around and then eventually beating me. Yeah, yeah. Gary, your story is all the more remarkable because of, you know, the way you were treated, the vicious yeah. beating you endured, yeah. the, um, you know, the coercion of your friends to testify yeah. against you, who all later recanted. Yes. Uh, um, so, you know, they were all put under pressure by the same police. Just the range of mistreatment of, of course, you first. Yes. Your family had to endure this, your friends. Oh, it's yes. It's really remarkable, Gary. I mean, I'm, I'm very inspired by your soul, man, by your, um, your, your genuine spirit. Really is fantastic. And yes. how you come through this, man. Yes. So um, for those who don't know, uh, at the time, Gary was also the youngest ever sentenced to die. He was sentenced to be executed at the age of 16. Um, were they going to wait until you turned 18, Gary? No, at the time, uh, there was a case that was pending before the United States Supreme Court, mm -hmm. Stanley Saw Roberts versus Louisiana. Because mm -hmm. my execution date was uh, May 1st, 1976. Wow. So, <laughs> Gary knowing that you were sentenced to die and that you didn't belong there, mm -hmm. um, how did you keep your sanity? Well, it wasn't easy for one thing. <laughs> no kidding. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I tell people is that I think about being young and inexperienced and stubborn. That probably yeah. was one of the antidote that kept me from uh, being uh, easily influenced by my surroundings and getting mm-hmm. caught up in prison life. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that that itself kind of like kept me going, you know, straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Knowing for one thing that I was in a place for something that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. And they was talking about taking my life for it. Mm-hmm. And thanks to the environment, in which case, the men that surrounded me, they mm-hmm. the one that helped added that balance in my life. Mm. And that helped me you, to be You mean to, the, the, the people in prison? Yeah, the prisoners themselves. And Gary, um, you know, again, you were on death row. So presumably, um, the people you were coming into contact with, those who you credit with giving you um, a sense of purpose and redemption, were some of the most notorious prisoners in the prison. Is that right? Well, there were, there were some. There was some, and uh, they were from all, you know, from all range of life. You had guys that was, uh, you could say that was hardened criminals. <laughs> uh, you had some that was basically, uh, they, they considered at that time, uh, black nationalists, mm-hmm. uh, black Panther Party members, mm-hmm. all right? And, uh, and you would just have plain casual individuals that was there to do their time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and basically protested against the conditions of the prison, and mm-hmm. and got uh got confined in CCR for those protests. So it was a combination of a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So you were in Angola, one of the most notorious prisons in America, on death yes. row, and these men, other convicted men, mm-hmm. um, looked out for you, huh? Yes. And what's amazing about it is that, you know, you you grew up hearing so much about the Ponderosa, mm-hmm. <laughs> in which case it's Angola, and Angola, yeah, and the farm, yeah, the farm itself, mm-hmm. and by having people in the community that have one time or another been to prison, you heard so much about it. Mm-hmm. So it was a place that you never wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that was my destination. <laughs> yeah. Worst prison in America is what yeah. I read. Right? Yeah. Literally the worst prison in America is what I read. Right. The worst right. treatment, the harshest guards, right. the worst conditions. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and knowing that that was a place that I was going, I didn't, the last thing I ever thought that there was, that there was good in that prison. Because you never hear about good things about prison. <laughs> you know, but I had to understand, I had the fortune of meeting the good things that come out that, that come out the prison themselves. And that was men that society that society rejected. Society felt that they were no longer worthy of being a part of you could say, uh, the free world. So they mm-hmm. sent them, you could say, with life sentences and practical life sentences or, or, or sentenced them to, to stay in prison for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about men 
that was out of our communities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that uh that, that had you know guarded, huh? you know that men that was married with children mm -hmm. men that weren't married but had children out there mm -hmm. and unfortunately some of them chose the life of crime mm -hmm. and and uh and got arrested and got sentenced to prison mm -hmm. so when i went to prison as a young, you know, as a young man, and these guys, uh, whatever, whatever, what they were, and you could say, confined for in maximum security, because CCR and Detro, they were all in the same building itself, mm -hmm. and they had Detro and CCR prisoners on the same tier, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh. And the tier that I was on, they had, they had, um, what, 12 cells on the tier, mm -hmm. but the other tiers had 15. And I wound up being put in cell eight. I'll never forget that, cell eight. And, um, and one of the guys that was in cell seven, his name was Jesse Washington. And this guy, when I passed this cell, his flow, we're talking about concrete floor, was, was I mean, it was completely white. What he was doing was that he was cleaning his floor with bleach and his floor was very white. Seemed like it was, it was just like, you're walking in a, walking in the kitchen that had, you understand, that, that had white floors. And, um, but later I found out that this guy was, you know, he's kind of was at that time, he was mentally ill. They was giving him a uh, thorazine. And, uh, but his, his daily activities was, he was scrubbing his floor with bleaching water. I noticed that, you know, and he didn't say anything to me. And then the other guy that was on the other side, name was uh, Claude Woods. He was a guy that uh, just been sentenced, at least the, uh, that he was just, uh, just sentenced for killing another prisoner in CCR itself. And he used to be a CCR prisoner, but after killing the prisoner, they, they transferred him death row. All right, and um, and then there was another guy called Billy McCoy. Gary, was, as you as you're sharing with these guys, do you mind connecting the dots for us about you know obviously every one of these people touched you in some real way. Yeah. The thing that I didn't realize, and, and maybe this is just dumb naivety on my part was that you know people on death row could have real humanity in them it was just wh whether whether they were guilty or or innocent they they were all still humans at the end of the day and they had both yes yes know, even though they might have done something bad they still had plenty of good in them too as you know what good about for us on that and sharing that because that was one yeah. of the most powerful things i learned from you and what was good about it the day that i was I was uh, put on the tier. 
one by one, the prisoners came out for the hour that they had for recreation on a tier. And those guys came by my cell, introduced themselves, told me that if there's anything that I needed to let them know, mm -hmm. you understand? Mm -hmm. and, and that they were there for me. Mm -hmm. They heard a lot about you understand, the incident that happened. So right there, they, they immediately registered their support. But of course, I didn't know these guys. I heard so much about prison. I kind of like suspect because I probably, you know, I felt that, you know, I was living in a, 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 a predatory environment. Right. And all this here could be a setup. They might be and taking later, advantage. I realized, huh? That they could take advantage of you, you thought. Yes, that they could take advantage of me because you heard, you heard so much about prison life itself. But these guys turn out to be genuine. These guys turn out to be very caring individuals, despite what they were in prison for, despite the act that they committed in prison themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I guess, Gary, they saw, what, a 16-year-old boy, obviously uh, frightened, scared, angry, right? And yes. And have uh, been able to reflect, man. And, and you know, and the thing is that, you know, they saw themselves when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. And and also they saw that here's a here's a kid that could be their son because some of the guys was old enough to be my parent, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And they looked at for some reason I guess it was some type of you could say uh, 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 remembrance that I had of you know that that they had of me by by being so young. They thought of, you know, said they, they thought of me as probably being uh, like a, a son or a little brother mm -hmm. or a cousin, nephew, things like that. Because the way they all treated me, it was a thing like, you know, like, like, like they, were, they were the one that wanted to take and show me, teach me, you understand, mm -hmm. about prison life, the art of survival. They mm -hmm. all wanted to take that, you can say that, that lead and showing me how, you know, what would be the right thing for me to do to survive in the prison itself. And I must say, those guys told me survival skills that I'll never forget. And Gary, too, now uh, uh, many people don't know the whole of your story, even if they're able to review the circumstances which got you into prison, yeah. uh, which landed you there. But, you know, on your um, first day there, I guess, or early on, they told you to pick cotton. You refused, right? No, that was uh, that was later on in '77 when I was uh, resentenced. I see. I, see. I was resentenced to life. Yeah, that's when they put me in. Uh, they put me in AU, mm -hmm. and that was like the transition unit mm -hmm. until where they they start bringing the, the new people. And they start sending them out there in the field on a hoot nanny. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the hoot nanny. <laughs> I don't know what a hoot nanny is. Sorry. So, well, first, um, just understanding the the prison industrial complex, Angola, the infamous penitentiary to which Gary was sentenced, is a working farm. It is yes. a profitable operation. They use prison labor. So, before we point the finger at any other country, China, etc., we have to look within and see exactly what's going on. And so um, Gary was sentenced to death row 
and the Supreme Court of the United States um, ruled that to sentence a juvenile to death is cruel and unusual punishment, is a violation. And so in 1977, Gary's sentence. Um, well, let me let, uh, was, go ahead. Chris, let me bag you up. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, in 1977, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the sentencing that they uh, gave us, those of us on death row, mm-hmm. was was unconstitutional because mm-hmm. during that time, the jury only the jury responsibility was to find the defendant guilty of a you understand know, of a capital offense, in which case that was first degree murder or aggravated rape. And they order and automatically they were giving the death penalty. Ah. And they ruled that process unconstitutional. Okay. Yes. That, that's what got your sentence. You were resentenced then to life in prison. Yes, and, and uh and what happened was that by me being a juvenile, the law has stated that if I would have gotten convicted on second degree murder automatically. It would have it have, it would have remanded my case to juvenile court. Mm-hmm. All right. So what they did was that when my attorneys them uh, brought me back to court, stating that okay, since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled his sentence, well, you know, his conviction unconstitutional, then that mean that they would have to refer him back to juvenile court. Mm-hmm. Because mind you. When the court ruled that the Senate was unconstitutional, Louisiana and several other Southern states felt that young people like me that was on death row, that it shouldn't be retroactive, that my conviction should stand and that my execution date should be carried out. I remember Louisiana fought it. We, yeah, we Louisiana fought it, Gary. yes. I marched free Gary Tyler. <laughs> you were a, you were a local celebrity, yeah. Yes. Not the kind of celebrity you wish to be, but no, uh, I'm <laughs> but that itself yeah. that kept me alive, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The support that I've gotten from you and many others. Mm-hmm. Yes. So several several months later, then that's when the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled and ordered the lower court to resentence me. Mm-hmm. So what they did in turn, they resentenced me to life, leaving the first degree murder conviction intact, preventing me from going back to juvenile court. Right, going back to court at all, right? Just to, <laughs> yeah, to, that's to what they did. Yeah. Yes. Gary, you, I remember as part of our earlier conversation and leading to that, you were talking about how after the resentencing, they, um, they still left you in CCR. You were still on that same tier, right? With the- yes, I was on that tier uh, until they eventually transferred me to uh, to um, with that place out there, St. James, out there, Convent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Convent, Louisiana. But you said those guys really at first you didn't want to leave that tier. You felt like well, that was well, when uh, well, you when I when later on in nineteen. Um, in 1980, when they took and uh, came to me to reclassify me to the main, you would say to the main prison? Yeah, to the general population. Yeah, to the general population. Mm-hmm. I, I refused, I had, my, uh, I had my reservations, all right, mm-hmm. at the time. 
And that's when the guys themselves on the tail, when I told them what happened, that's when they told me that, you know, at least reminded me that when I first came to prison, they had already been in CCR several years before. Some had been in sales for 10 years. Wow. And they told me, said, here, you gone, you almost gone on your 10 year, making it almost 20 years since I've been in the cell. And here you give an opportunity to being released out the cell and you don't want to go anywhere. Just Why didn't you want to go, Gary? Well, because I felt that those guys had become my family. Mm, mm -hmm. We had been through a lot. We, I mean, we, we did things as a community. Mm -hmm. And these guys invested a lot in me, and I really appreciated them. Mm -hmm. You understand? And by me being separated from them, I felt like I wouldn't have, you know, it, it was like taking something away from me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those guys told me, you know, that that's why they worked to prepare me for this moment. Mm -hmm. That when opportunity come, that I'll be ready for whatever lies ahead of me. And it took one, one guy to say this, mm. and I'll never forget, you know that, Gary, everybody know who you are. Mm -hmm. And if they let you out in the main prison, and if you don't like it, they would be gladly, they'd be glad to send you back to CCR. <laughs> you can always come back here, right? Always, no one wants to go. Always be, they would always be welcome to send you back to CCR. And just that, you know, all the things, the logic and rationale that there was, uh, you know, was given me, that, that in particular thing, you know, that particular thing stood out. And, you know, it's like a light came in my head and say, you're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go down there and see what lies ahead of me. And a week later, mm -hmm. they came back and brought me back on the reclass, you know, on, on a, a special board. Mm -hmm. And they let me out. Mm -hmm. And that was, like I said, that was in 1980. And mm -hmm. I've been out the sales ever since. Mm -hmm. Gary, even I say that, huh? I was going to say, you even became a first-class trustee, ultimately, right? Yes. Well, you know, not to okay. say that they were easy for me when I first was, was, uh, was you know, uh, 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 let out the sales. Mm -hmm. It was a challenge because mm -hmm. we're talking about security that heard so much about me. And I was depicted as this, as this, you, this hardened uh, militant guy. Mm -hmm. And that they had this this fear, this apprehension about me, and that itself was was a, was a general feeling among some of the guys in the population, because they felt that if they were caught in my presence, then that would be some type of uh, retaliation or some type of uh, harassment from the security officers in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, so you know after. After being out there and and, uh, and and able to navigate my way through all those challenges, and you know, then that's when everybody began to relax mm -hmm. and and realize that I am not this person who they themselves thought I was. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Gary, was it before or after this that you started to develop the um, the ability to actually forgive this craziness? I remember you telling me the story very vividly at, at dinner yeah. with Chris, and you're talking about some of your first few nights in in prison, and and somebody was set on fire, and you were 16, and I was trying to take myself back to 16, and I thought I'd never, I've no idea, right? And this guy's screaming, and I wouldn't even have any idea what to think. Especially, yes. you didn't do anything. You just, you didn't deserve to be there. You had no idea. And then, you know, learning a little bit about the fact, just a little bit, but like, there's a lot of humanity in all of us, even when, when it's not obvious to everybody. Yes. And then, um, at some point, you, uh, you saying, yeah, and I, I forgave everybody. Do you mind kind of like, where did, where did you start to develop the thought, like, or the love or the acceptance? Because it didn't feel like you just forgave everybody. No, uh, I felt like you embraced them. Oh, no. I mean, it's like everything that an individual go through in life that they eventually come, they they eventually come at a point where they have to make hard decisions. What would be in their best interest? And by me knowing that the road that I traveled, you understand that I felt that there was something that I was doing that was wrong because the good things that was happening for me, I really wasn't looking at that as a, as something that was good. I looked at it that it was something that was holding me back because I looked, you know, cause I was in prison for something that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. You understand? And what they were doing, you know, the things that people were doing for me, oh, it was a giving. You know what I'm saying? It was a giving. But my thing was that I'm in prison. And I don't know whether I'm going to get out, whether I'm going to survive this or not. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, it was one of those things where I had to be mindful of everything that happened around me and everything that I did because that there were dark consequences behind a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And as I told you that, due to my stubbornness, I think that in itself gave me, you understand, gave me the God way. I didn't literally take things for granted. Mm-hmm. You understand? But what, you can say in due time, when, when I began to relax, begin to hear what people were telling me and not just saying that, yeah, I hear you, but really wasn't even comprehending what they were telling me. Mm-hmm. But I started actually hearing those guys and those guys telling me where it was, just there where, where, where it was beneficial and I just started seeing things. Mm-hmm. I stopped, you could say, stop getting caught up in my feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that emotions are to serve us and not to govern us. Mm. And that's when I start to observing, listening, taking in what people tell me, you know, and, and one thing that I'll never forget when I start reading, you know, the, the, um, the newspapers and my trial transcript was that 
I know I was innocent. Mm -hmm. I wanted everybody to believe it, to know that I was innocent. Mm -hmm. And for someone to say that they didn't believe that I was innocent, it was a hurting thing. Mm -hmm. I felt that you should believe because you was coming from the purse, the horse's mouth. Mm -hmm. All right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, to think, to think that says that you really not, you know, you're really not looking at things rationally because life is not like that. You understand? Mm -hmm. They're always gonna be, they're always gonna be those that's not gonna believe you. You understand? But when I start to read the newspaper and I start reading about what what the state witnesses, what they had to say, what they were going through, and how they and how they were terrorized. You understand how they were threatened and knowing that, hey, wait a minute. Those are the same experiences that I went through. They threatened me and they brutalized me. They literally beat me. You see what I'm saying? That's something that my mother herself had to hear. Mm -hmm. And even though they were denying that it happened to me, but I know they know as well as my mother and father knew that this was real. Mm -hmm. You understand? And then I was saying to myself, here, I'm holding bitter feelings toward the two girls that got on the witness stand and lied on me. Mm -hmm. The guy that got on the witness stand and lied on me, and they telling you, you know, during their recantation, that this what the very individuals who beat me, who terrorized my family, and terrorized people in the community, as a matter of fact, who terrorized us on that bus, what they, we understand what they did to the very youth. Peers of mine. Yeah. When I start, when I start rationalizing and saying that, oh, wait a minute, you know, what I'm, saying? I'm being a little too hard on them, mm -hmm. but I need to hear their story. And that's so that when was, I start. Uh, and that, that was the first kernel, huh? When you, when yeah. the, the people who testified against you and then recanted, yeah, you started to have a sense of forgiveness or at least some compassion for them, knowing that they had gone through something not quite as uh, drastic as you, but Right. The same fear and terror, right? Same fear and terror. Yeah. You know, and I think that itself opened the door for me to really start to rationalize a lot of things and, and start to, you know, because like I said, at that time, you know, I was so upset. I was so bitter, mm -hmm. especially being on death row, confined in the cell. And you, you know, when you call home or when you, when, when your family visits you, they telling you about how they being constantly harassed by the by the St. Charles Parish police officers. How they being pulled aside on the river roads. How people, you understand, police officers or police cars driving through driving through Preston Hollow and, and, and just parking in front of the house. You see what I'm saying? These kind of things and how my brothers are being harassed. How my um. How my brother, one of my oldest brother, lost his job. My sister-in-law lost their job when they were understand when when people found out that they were kin to me. It was a thing where it was it was affecting my family. And when I was hearing this, it was getting me upset. It was getting me mad. You know? Gary, yeah. And, and so you that little opening started a grand process because yes. ultimately you were you've even told me, and the joyful nature in your spirit tells me the truth of it that you, you know, have, of course, forgiven the judge who later asked your lawyer for yeah. forgiveness, for you to yes. forgive him, <laughs> right? Yes. Quietly, yeah. without your knowledge, though, you found out. Right. You know, and you like I said, you know, 
from people you know in your family who are feeling the same thing you are to the jury and the people who sentenced you. Yes. Long, long. Yes. Run. Yes. And, and then, you know, when, when my mother, you know, when my mother visited me and she told me that she was at a place like, um, uh, BNC out there on Airline Highway, and that uh, a white lady come up to her and tell her, uh, Miss Tyler, I want you to know that it's a shame what they did to your son. Mm-hmm. And that I want you to know that you're in my prayers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When my mother told me that, you know, it's like, I began to realize that all white people weren't, e- you know, weren't evil. Mm-hmm. They weren't bad. Mm-hmm. But before that, you were thinking maybe that was the case. Uh, before that, you thought that maybe that was the case. Well, because, I mean, when, by being in Angola. <laughs> on death row. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the search for someone to blame is a success, always. Right, you know, because oh, here you're in a place that you've never been to, and here you got white correction officers. They're treating you like, you understand, know, like they hate you, and they don't even know you. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Born under suspicion, Gary. Yeah, I know. you know. <laughs> you you to, yeah, question the right. whole system. Right, so... But you had a lot of support, right, from the lady on Airline Highway who told yes. your mama that they were... Eventually, yeah, eventually people start coming out. Mm-hmm. People start, you know, they start expressing how they feel mm-hmm. about things that were taking place. It was, you know... Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a thing where I just, you know, I just, you know, and then, you know, to be honest with you, it was like a burden being lifted off me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because back then when I, when I was expressing my, my feelings, I was expressing emotions. Right. You know, and, 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 and it wasn't pleasant. It was like I was angry. And you were practicing anger, right? Yeah, that's, that's what it was. And I if guess you that's work what a muscle, it gets stronger. And if you practice Right. It gets stronger. Practice hatred and anger, right. and it gets stronger. Yeah. Right. I don't and, think I ever thought about happiness or anger as muscles, but it makes sense now that you're saying it. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, and even though I was going through you know, going through that transition by my you know, changing the feelings, all right, you know. Never once did I thought about my appearance. <laughs> you know, and what I mean about my appearance was that I started to grow in long dreadlocks. Mm-hmm. And I had an African medallion hat on my head. Mm-hmm. And I very seldom smiled. Mm-hmm. And people looked at me at this angry black guy. Understand? And my appearance itself betrayed me as though like I was, you know, I was so militant until people was afraid to even come talk to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took a friend of mine, Wilbur Regal, who was the editor of the Angelite magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks to him that, uh, you know, he came, he had a talk with me. He said, Gary, you know, he said, you're a good guy. 
Mm-hmm. He said, I got to know you, and I see how you how you get along with these guys, and how how these guys look up to you, respect you, listen to you, and everything. But he said, you know, he said, but security, security, fear you. Mm-hmm. They fear you because the way you look, the way you talk, your mannerism. And he said, man, that another thing, he said, you very seldom smile. He said, man, you know, when you do smile, he said, man, you got a nice smile. He said, you need to start smiling. <laughs> so, you know, I just nonchalant said, oh, man, come on, man. You know, I didn't want to hear that. That's just my attitude, you know? Right, right, right. But, but it just, you know, but afterwards well, I went back to I have the- a soft spot in my heart for newspaper editors too, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> so he steered you right, huh? He gave yes. you Yes. So uh so you know, I went back and I really thought about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just don't change overnight. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's a process. So what I started doing was that I start I start wearing dark shades. Mm-hmm. I try to, you know, try to keep my dress like in a more presentable way. Mm-hmm. And I shaved that that big old black beard I had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just try to keep a little, little gold cheat and stuff like that. And uh, I took the African medallion, you know, uh, off. Mm-hmm. And I start smiling and and it seemed like it opened a whole new world for me. Mm-hmm. Security started warming up to me. They, uh, they, we talked, and and then next thing you know, security officers that I knew that was in CCR, mm-hmm. they were surprised to see me in main prison. And but but the thing was is that. They knew who I was, so they liked how I was trained, how, how I was developing, mm-hmm. and they became, you know, someone, you know, people that I can, if I had a problem, that I can go to them with. But the thing was is that my pride around up is not, you know, not able to leave prison, so I start going, I start going to them about other people's problems. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, but by the you know main fact of going to them, talking to them, gave you know empowered them to be able to do things, knowing that if they're able to do it, it was a day where I'll be able to go back to the prison population and let them know that hey, this is a good guy. He's willing to do these things for you, and things like that. So that's what I started doing. I developed a good relationship with security where I was able to resolve a lot of problems before it got out of hand. Well, those guys back in CCR, Gary, saw your leadership, man. And it showed, even in the general population. And ultimately, you know, you started to do that work with uh, the play, with the the drama club. Yes. Y'all did uh, plays because uh, that was in the 80s, of course, when the AIDS epidemic was raging. Right. And, um, yeah, and even was, to the point of being a, a bridge to create that uh, hospice center for dying right. prisoners. Yeah, so, you know it is, and it's amazing how all of that came about because, um, you know, when I was a kid, you know, in uh, in elementary school, 
I used to love to get up there and dance and and sang and perform and little, different little plays and skits that we had at school. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you had, when you're a child, you feel like you can do anything. You can fly if you want in your mind. You can. But no matter how much you learn when you're young, when you come of age, it seems as though like you become afraid to do those very things because you don't want to come across as being silly or someone that acting, you can say not acting their age. But you know what? Those young experiences that you go through really still a part of you. And no, and that's in, in, you know, in that times, if you could just reach back and pull that, it helps you. You understand? It helps you to need to, you know, to navigate some of the channels that you go through and help you to where you say, like, oh man, you know, I can do that. Mm-hmm. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. So when I became a part of the drama club. I start reflecting on the things that I learned when I was a when I was a little kid in school, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, you know, and, and, and understanding that what I'm doing on the stage is an act, is a play act. It's not me; it's a play act, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and that, and when you hear about people, you know, when, when you hear the audience clapping and, and and giving you praise, that's an exhilarating feeling mm-hmm. to hear that from your audience. You understand? And, and, and that's what helped me. So we started developing our own skits. And for, matter of fact, the first play that we in the drama club came up with collaboratively that we wrote by me being a former dead row prisoner. You understand? And, and here they, was, uh, they were in the process of, of wanting to execute Robert Williams, a guy in Baton Rouge. Yeah that uh, we came up with a play, Execution, Who Has the Right? Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, to where we, we took and developed a debt, uh, you could say a sale, mm-hmm. a debt, you could say an uh, electric chair in the debt, you could say in the debt chamber. Mm-hmm. Then we had uh, a courthouse where, you know, a courtroom where we had the judge, mm-hmm. the prosecutor, the defendant, the defendant along with, with his uh, attorney, and we had a jury. Mm-hmm. And we, we tried convicted, executed the guy in prison. And do you know, on that particular night when we did that play, when we took, as though like we was executing the guy on stage, we had a guy that was doing type of uh, lighting effects and everything. We were gonna dim the lights. We blew the light out the place. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad no one got really electrocuted. <laughs> can, can, <laughs> but bring me forward a little bit um, to today, yeah. <laughs> right? But, you know, uh, your journey is one like I've only ever. I I don't I wouldn't say dreamed of or thought of just. Seems like a movie, right? It, I don't, I don't yeah. know how to put it any other way. It just seems so unimaginable to me, and I thought I had a good imagination. Um, yeah. <laughs> I learned from it. But one of the things I'd wondered about, like today and going forward, is, you know, I think there are probably a lot of lessons that 
you can share with people based on where we are today that I think are probably very valuable and important. And I'm kind of just wondering what, what's at the top of your mind? What kind of oh. things should we be sharing with people? You've learned you know, a lot and accumulated a lot of wisdom. You know, I, I work at a youth center and the young people that come to the place, they remind me a lot of myself, even to the point where I tell them that I want you to know that I haven't been old all my life. I've been young too. I was a kid. I was a juvenile. Mm -hmm. But one of the unfortunate things with my life compared to yours is that I was in a place that you wouldn't want to you, you wouldn't want to go. Mm -hmm. I was at a place that you would be you, you fortunate to live the life that you are living because you have opportunity to better yourself. You just homeless right now. You just jobless right now. You need the help from the programs that they have here. Mm -hmm. But always remember, you can get your life together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't feel as though that this is the end of the world because it is not. Don't feel though that, that the world is against you because the world is not against you. Because if it was, you wouldn't have programs like SPY here to try to help you. You understand? To try to give you an opportunity where you can better yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I look at that and, and I never thought that I'd be in a position where I can tell these young men that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except the ones that was in prison, all right? And I always let them know that don't let what have been a misfortune for you today define your life for the rest of your life. Because yeah. what you're going through today in your life, it's just a part of your middle passage. Because at the end of the day, what you thought was a problem gonna be something of the past. Because tomorrow, it's gonna be something different. But if you haven't learned from what you went through yesterday, then you are not preparing yourself for tomorrow. You're not preparing yourself for the future. So each and everything that you go through, you take that as a means of, you know, uh, uh, you can say as a blessing because it makes you a better person. Mm -hmm. It makes you a better person because you know one thing, you know that this place is not guaranteed you tomorrow. So when you come here today, what you're gonna do, you're gonna make sure that once you take your shower, get a, 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 a get a change of clothing, get a pair of shoes. When you do that, then you're gonna say, okay, what about tomorrow? They may not be open tomorrow. So what you're gonna do is that, can I have an extra pair of socks? Can I have an extra pair of underwear? Can you give me a pair of extra pair of jeans? Because you know they're expecting it to rain and we don't know like this pandemic happened that you're going to be open tomorrow. So they learn how to be able to prepare themselves for tomorrow and not just today by living for today. What, so ad what advice... Go ahead, Neil. What advice would you have for uh, uh, our families like today? You know, Chris and my family today. Um, extending well, the people we work with, right? Everybody's feeling a little tra trapped and cooped in. And well, let me, let me say this. 
Let me say this, is that right now, you and Chris know how I felt when I was, when I was incarcerated. I don't know if we can quite say that, but yeah, I yeah. understand, understand what I'm saying. Understand what I'm saying is that true, you have a choice to go outside. You have a choice to go to different places where they say, look, don't intermingle with a crowd. You have that choice, but you decide not to exercise that because of what? You'll be putting your family in danger because you may go out there and get something and bring it back where it's gonna affect them. So you're gonna act responsibly, right? So you're gonna endure the time that you feel as though, oh man, I'm in this place here, this is too much. I feel like I'm in prison. But just think about the guys or the women that's in prison who don't even have a choice. Who got to who got to comply with the rules because of what? They can find in the, they can find in the cell or they can find in a in the dormitory where 86 men in a dorm where they cannot practice 6 feet away from each other because they're clustered like sardines in a can. So what those guys do, in which case, and I always tell people is that, never think that people, everybody in prison are ignorant or dumb. Because you know what? People in prison, one time or another, were school teachers, was bankers, was uh, professors, was, uh, you could say, I mean, professional people, where they, you understand, where they work for a living. And now they're in prison, even to the point where you had people that went to medical school, where inmates was, you know, was, was, was part of, uh, you say, part of the medical staff at, at, at Angola to the point where they knew certain things and they were allowed to practice certain, you know, practices, even though they, they, they couldn't operate on another prison thing like that, but they knew enough where they were to assist the, the nurses and the doctors and things like that. But the point is, is that the men and women in prison, they have a way of coming together to where they know that being clustered in the area, they're going to do whatever possible, you understand, to protect themselves and to protect each other. So they're going to work together. They're going to make sure that they're going to organize a group that in the dormitory where one part or one group gonna keep the, you could say, keep the urinal or the, the, the or, or the shower, they'll stand all the toilets clean. They're gonna keep the uh, the TV room or the rec room clean. They're gonna clean the dormitories. They're gonna wipe things down. The way they do those things, and know, and the reason I know that is because I knew that when AIDS came about. How the, how the prison was able to coalesce together and how they, how they were to do things to really protect one another, the things like that. So, you know, not to say that they don't need help. Of course they need help. You know what I'm saying? Because by being closer together is a really, is, is a breeding ground for people and, and they're more susceptible of being, uh, 
you can say, uh, 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 infected by, by the virus itself. But when you're in a situation like that, you learn how to survive. You learn how to survive. And I guess that's the point to all of the people listening or watching today is that you're going to learn how to survive one way or the other. You're going to learn how to survive one way or another, and, and you're going to come out better because of this. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about it. We allow our life experiences to help us, to prepare us for, for things that may come about that we'll be, we'll be prepared next time to deal with it. Because when this happened, nobody was prepared for this. Oh, it's so true. Nobody was prepared for this, <clears throat> even though there was warning signs years ago. Mm-hmm. But nobody took it serious. Yeah. Nobody thought it would ever happen, especially yeah. here in America. Right. We, got, we, got, we got right now that have been registered almost a million people that have been affected, you know, infected by, uh, by the coronavirus. We got over 55,000 that have died. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we got over what? 300 sub million people in this country. So we have a long ways to go. Mm-hmm. And, and if we don't take heed to the medical doctors and the scientists telling us that, well, the, the, you can say the, the measures that we're going to have to take to ensure our existence, then we're going to perish. We're going to perish behind ignorance and foolishness. Because some, some of these governors that they have in the state, it's apparent that you see that. How they got in office, really don't know because uh, right now, <laughs> uh, 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 a lot of voters got voters' remorse right now. Yeah, well. Yeah. Because they're not April operating their interests. Uh-huh. April distance will help us to have a May existence. That's Yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to the yeah. To yes, sources. Gary, yeah. we really we really appreciate your time today on the podcast. We're happy to talk to you a little bit afterwards, obviously as well. But yes, of um, course. Is there any place anybody can find you online if they want to hire you as a motivational speaker or get a chance to just talk to you? Where, where's the best place for people to find you? Find me. Well, you know, Chris, I'm I'm I mean, uh, Neil, I'm always on the road. So, so I'm a hard person to really track down at the moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Gary, is there a place where we could contact you if someone wanted to hire you as a speaker or otherwise? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, my email. What is your email address, Gary? My email is GaryTyler710 at gmail.com. And Gary's a humble man, but I'd like to also say that, you know, um, supporting his transition back to um, the open and real world with the free people has been a challenge. 41 years in prison, and you can tell Gary's doing wonderfully. But if you'd like to help support that, there is the Liberty Hill Foundation, one of Gary's many um, uh, fortunate supporters, people who've taken up his cause. Right. Liberty Hill Foundation um, has a site. It's a back-to-life reentry fund. If you feel so uh, motivated to donate, please do. Supporting a person like Gary, a leader, and who's making a real difference in the world is something we all can do.
and get behind. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, Gary. Thank, thank you, everybody, for joining us for this conversation with Gary Tyler. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had.